This message first aired on the radio on March 9, 2004. Today we begin a major section in 2 Corinthians, beginning with the first verse of the third chapter, and this will carry us all the way into a portion of the seventh chapter. And this section of the epistle really is Paul's defense of his ministry. We could call it other things, but really he's defending it, he's outlining his ministry. He's once again demonstrating to the Corinthians that his ministry is from God and that his authority is from God and that he doesn't rest in the authority of men. Structurally, this epistle is, is a pretty neat one. There, at least this portion of it seems very orderly and neat to me. Now, I think the scriptures are always orderly and neat, but I don't always see the order. And maybe you have that problem too. As we continue to search through the scriptures, we'll find its immense order overwhelming us. And in all eternity, as we continue to read this book, which we'll do, and we continue to see this book, I think we'll be overwhelmed with the complexity and the simplicity and the order of the scriptures. But this particular portion fits very nicely in that it seems to fit between the discussions of the summary discussions concerning his first epistle about chapter 5 and then about chapter 6. So the apostle really had two things, as we discussed last time when we were together, two things that he took up with the entire church or matters that were entire church matters in his first epistle concerning their conduct. The first matter we we took up last time, which was the arrogance that they were displaying by refusing to judge the wickedness of one who was having his father's wife, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The next thing he took up that was an entire failure of the church was their failure to take up matters of civil tort, but instead go to the courts of the unrighteous about those things. When Christians were involved, those matters, uh, which can get completely out of hand, let me assure you, when there are two Christians involved or members of the church involved in the same locality, these matters should be resolved in the context of the local church or left off entirely so that the ensuing slanders and scandals don't destroy the work of God, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, what I'm saying is that here now, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 took up the aftermath of the apostles' advice after they had gone along with him in his instruction of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then later, when we come to chapter 7, a little ways into the chapter 7, we'll see how the apostle also instructs them concerning the matters of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians because they also went along with him there and he has some further instruction in that matter. In between those two discussions, we have this outline of his ministry or this defense of his ministry beginning with the first verse of the third chapter. So I hope that helps you in your understanding of 2 Corinthians. Remember, this is a letter, and it needs to be read all together. And then we also want to rightly divide it or cut it straight. And we have some straight-cutting issues here in this rather difficult portion of Scripture that we know to be 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's dig into it a little bit together, hoping that, and depending on the Lord helping us, to bring out the things that are important and to cut it straightly. The first thing we want to talk about is the way that the apostle goes about his defense. And here he now points out to them that his defense of ministry is not going to be in man's terms, and he's not going to do it along men's lines. 
So how do men do it? Well, let's just read a little bit, and then we're going to take up a a little bit about these first three verses and explain some things that go on, that have gone on in churches, that still go on among some churches, and maybe has become a tradition that certainly is not commanded to be a tradition. Well, do we begin again, verse 1, to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some, epistles of commendation to you, or of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Forasmuch as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, or Christ's epistle, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy, not fleshly, fleshy tables of the heart. Now this is a complex statement, and he's going to take up from here other matters of doctrine and of comparisons that require us to get a good start here in this section of the epistle. So, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Now, of course, the answer to this is no. This is a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions have implied answers. And he said, do we begin again to commend ourselves? And, of course, that's the problem with defending yourself. Uh, you know, what do you say? According to me, I'm a good guy? What value is that? My own testimony concerning myself is uh, useless. And this, of course, is a principle of life. Uh, what I say about myself might be revealing, but I can't add anything to who I am by saying things about myself. So, of course, we do say things about ourselves when we feel that we need to defend ourselves. Of course, it's a futile thing. So the apostle now discusses that futility. He says, do we begin to commend ourselves again? Do we have to say uh, things about ourselves like I did before? Now, in in his previous letter, of course, he said he had to defend himself, and he did commend himself in the previous letter. We, We look at the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians just real briefly. He said, am I not an apostle? And, of course, the answer is, yes, he's an apostle. Am I not free? And, and uh, of course, the answer was, yes, you're free. Uh, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord, uh, which is part of the qualification of an apostle? And the answer, these are all rhetorical questions with the answer, yes, you've seen the Jesus Christ our Lord. Are ye not my work in the Lord? And, of course, this is now his real commendation is them. And he's going to lay that out in a little better detail here in the third chapter. Uh, This is part of his pathetic condition of the Corinthians that's visited upon the Apostle Paul that he has to defend himself. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said, If I be not an apostle to others, in other words, if others don't think I'm an apostle, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. He said, You're my signet ring. Okay, you're you're the mark. You're the seal of my apostleship. Now, he's going to come into this again, this same argument, but in more detail here in the third chapter. But apparently now he's taking up this subject. He said, do we need letters? Verse 1. So do we begin to commend ourselves again? Well, the answer to this is no rhetorically, but the fact is, yes, uh, yes, you have to do it again, even though it's ridiculous to do it again. And so this is a bit of irony. Of course, it calls their attention to his displeasure in the unreasonableness that is required of him to continually defend himself. 
Now, why does he have to do this? He has to do this because there are some in Corinth that are undermining him continually. And now maybe there's some preaching brothers out there listening, and if there's any of you preaching sisters out there listening, then you find something else to do. But maybe some preaching brothers happen to be listening to this as we look at it, and you're stuck in this spot where you feel you have to defend yourself. And you know that there are those that oppose you, maybe in your own church. Certainly that's where the opposition would be the, the possibly the most damaging. Let me just say that your self-defense is a bit futile, though it may be necessary. And uh, to call the issue out in public, however, is important. Uh, whether or not you can adequately defend yourself, if God Almighty has appointed you to preach in that church, uh, then you'd better do it. And if he hasn't, and you're not sure about that, then just stop preaching. Because if you can't preach on the Lord, you'll be preaching on some board, and then they'll get to tell you what to say, and then you should obey them. But if you serve the Lord, well, then you're under his orders, and if he wants you to be kicked around for a while uh, for his glory, well, then that's what you do. But get out there and make the issue known so that they which are approved, assuming that you're approved, of course, can be made manifest in the local church. That's my advice to you, and I've failed in that in the past, and I've succeeded in that in the past. But as Chief Justice Brandeis of the U.S. Supreme Court once said, and of course this is not the scripture, but it's according to it, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Get it out in the open, get these issues out in the open, and deal with them in biblical ways, and deal with them in grace. But be straightforward here. The apostle is our example. He's our cutout. He's the prototypical sinner, and he's the prototypical servant, and he's the prototypical preacher of the Word of God. And lay aside the means of men, and quit fearing man. As the Scripture says, fear of man brings a snare. Uh, but trusting in the Lord, their safety and security. And so here, the apostles write out in the light again, there are no doubt many of those in Corinth who oppose him. And maybe they finally succeed. I am of the mind that uh, Third John, where we see Diotrephes not receiving John the Apostle and putting out brothers in the church that would receive the apostles or other brethren that associate with the Apostle John, uh, I believe that church possibly is in Corinth, if not maybe it's Ephesus. But uh, in any case, you may not win here below, brother, but you'll commend yourself to God, and we know how this ends. And we know finally Christ triumphs. That's the context of the third chapter here. Whatever may take place temporarily, we know consequently, consummately, Christ triumphs. And by the way, he visits our labor with his grace. There will be fruit. So the apostle saying, look, do I need, like other guys do, letters of commendation to you from others or from you? And this brings up the whole issue of letters of commendation. Now, I was in a church for a short time where letters of commendation were being used among churches. And, of course, these churches were very proud that they weren't a denomination, but in fact they were a denomination. Yes, that's right, I'm talking about Plymouth Brethren churches. I'm talking about, well, excuse me, Brethren assemblies. And here they apparently take from this scripture that letters of commendation are to be used among Christians. Well, uh, the apostle certainly doesn't make this a traditional practice. 
He did not practice it himself, and I don't know. He doesn't disparage it much, but he says, I don't need it. He said, my work commends me. And frankly, friends, uh, what good is a letter from someone to commend you in the Lord's service? I do believe that every Christian worker, every servant of the Lord, should be able to point to those who stand with him and for him in the ministry of the Word of God. There is no such thing as self-commendation in Christ. But look what the apostle says. He says that he wants Christ's epistle. He wants Christ's letter of commendation. That's what he says in verse 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be Christ's epistle ministered by us. So he now points to the fruit of his labor. In fact, here's what he's saying. I don't want a letter from you guys, and I don't want a letter to you guys. In fact, you are our letter written on our hearts. He says, I carry around a letter written on my own heart, which you guys are. My care for you, my labor among you, my fruit among you. And then he says, you are manifestly, you are obvious to all, declared to be Christ's epistle written by us, or ministered by us. Actually, not written by us, ministered by us. Christ's epistle, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And now he says, look, you're Christ's epistle that are served by us. You're a letter of Jesus Christ to anybody who wants to read it. Now, I do not say that individually, by the way, you are the only Bible that somebody else will read. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's not here at all. What he's saying is this, the local church, as it is the fruit of the ministry of a servant of God, is Christ's letter to the world. And of course, this is merely a correspondent to this. The Lord Jesus Christ said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Of course, he was the light of the world when he was in the world, but he's not in the world today. He is at the right hand of God in the heavens. Now he says, you are the light of the world. Now that doesn't mean this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Of course, there's some truth to that. Uh, I want to be bold for Christ. I want to declare Christ personally. But as we associate together in a local church, and every obedient Christian does, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. That is the light of the world. The church of the living God is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And this is part of what he's saying. Of course, he'll flesh that out even more when he comes into the pastoral epistles, and we might just say that doctrine progresses to that point, which it does. The progressive doctrine of the Scripture will move from these church epistles to those prison epistles or pastoral epistles, and we'll see these doctrines more fleshed out, just as we're seeing in 2 Corinthians, doctrines opened up in 1 Corinthians, compounded and added to. Well, I hope I haven't just splattered too much stuff all over the place, because we want to come back here and say that the apostle was not focused on what men had to say about him, whether it was a group of men or individual men. He did not trust men, and in that he followed our Lord Jesus Christ, who in John chapter 2 it said, Many believed on him, but he did not trust himself to them, because he knew what was in men. And brother, he also paid attention to the proverb that said, Fear of man brings a snare. Go ahead and don't fear men. Fear God, because there's safety with God. 
We'll come back. There's more good stuff here, and there's deep stuff here. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. Stay with us after this brief announcement, will you? Here we are in 2 Corinthians 3. Now here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, we have this this interesting kind of statement. He says, well, you're our epistle. You're the epistle of Christ. He says, you're our, first he says, you're our epistle written on our own hearts. So you're our letter. You are our letter written in our own hearts, known and read of all men. And now he says, you are declared to be Christ's epistle. You're the letter of Christ, manifestly declared, obvious, ministered or served by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And now he's converting this discussion from his lack of need of a letter of commendation like some have to a discussion of the two covenants, one that emanates out of Sinai and one that emanates out of Calvary's cross. And so here now he says, you're not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone. All right, so now he's he's got two analogies. First of all, he says, not written with ink, so he's no longer talking about parchment and ink, the kind of letters that other men use to get commendations for their service of Christ uh, from men. He's also saying, not in tables of stone. Well, well, that's the old covenant where the finger of God wrote in table of stones uh, the Ten Commandments. Now, that's the work that he's transitioning to, and to discuss, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Now, this fleshy just means human beings. This just has to do with our constitution and frame. This does not have to do with the old nature. Of course, the the work of the Spirit is not uh, written on the old nature. The work of the Spirit is written on the heart of man, and it isn't written through the old nature. This doesn't discuss at all here that idea. This just says, this is written in you as a person, as opposed to a dead stone, this is written on a living stone. That's what his point is. And instead of being written with the finger of God, which speaks of judgment, this is written with the Spirit of God, which speaks of life. Of course, judgment speaks of death, because that's what we deserve when we're judged. Uh, But he that's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ already passed through death into life, and so now he's saying that this is about life. That's the whole discussion that's opened up here, that he's going to do a comparison for the remainder of the chapter, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Our work today is to talk to you about covenants and position those things correctly so that we come out of this discussion both informed and not confused. We'll try to navigate this real carefully to make sure that you don't fall into a contemporary trap today that's going around in a rather big way. I think it's always gone around in a big way. But in the 20th century, this was overcome to a large extent. Late 19th, 20th century, the scriptures began to be rightly divided. Great light fell upon believers here and there. The truth of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, its imminence, the hope of his coming for his own people Israel and the millennium that he will commence. All of this has come out in the last, at least come to the fore. It's always been in the scripture, but it's come to the fore among Christians, at least some Christians in many places, in the last hundred years or so, 150 years we might even say. But today there's the new uh, counter-reformation, which is just the old 
Reformation, bringing the Dark Ages back to us, whereby there is this thing called replacement theology out there. What is replacement theology? It is the concept, it's an unbiblical concept, it is a concept that the church, which is Christ's body, has replaced Israel in the economy of God. And of course that's a false thing, and so we need to keep the right relationship of the church, which is his body, to Israel. And BibleStudy.net, that's one of our prime directives from the Lord. We believe that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, and we believe that Israel still occupies a prime place in the affairs of men and in the sight of God, and that one day all Israel will be saved. We are not Christian Zionists. I don't know what exactly that means, but I believe that that, that what's going on in Israel today is certainly within the sovereignty of God, but that state is organized there in unbelief, and there's a horrible time coming for that state those uh, and the Jewish people, the time of Jacob's troubles. And uh, we petition you, we beseech you today, our Jewish friends, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you won't be a Jew, neither will you be a Gentile, but you'll be in the church of God, which is his body. Well, let's just now begin to launch into the next discussion, starting with Second Corinthians 4. The apostle says, Such trust have we through Christ toward God, or as it reads in the King James, to Godward, or toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now he's closing out his discussion of this commendation, and he says, look, we don't think highly of ourselves. We're not here to boast of ourselves. We don't think we're sufficient in ourselves. I'm not here to discuss my own abilities or my own skills or my own position in the church which is his body as an apostle. Really what I'm trying to tell you is this. Our sufficiency is of God. God has undertaken for us. God will continue to undertake for us. We have great boasting, great confidence. We trust through Christ toward God. I'm just declaring my trust in God to you so that you realize how it is that I operate. That's what the apostle says. Now he says, God, who has also made us, and here, of course, is the commendation. The commendation that the apostle sought is the one that he has. He says, our sufficiency is of God, who has also, or who also has made us, able ministers of the New Covenant, or the New Testament. Now, here, the New Testament is not these prophetic writings that we're reading. We call it the New Testament. It's taken on the connotation, but that is not the proper denotation from the Scriptures themselves. Actually, what we commonly refer to as the New Testament Scriptures, the Bible just calls the prophetic writings. They're, They're just prophetic writings like the Old Testament Scriptures, like the other Scriptures were prophetic writings. And, of course, the Old Testament, as a compendium of books, is also a misnomer because the Old Testament, or diatheke, the Old Covenant, it was the one made with Israel at Mount Sinai, and we read that in Exodus, the 20th, 1920th chapters. That's when that all comes out. Of course, the book of Genesis before that, and, and many chapters of the book of Exodus are also part of the Old Testament scriptures, or the scriptures, as we know them. And certainly when God has finished delivering the Old Covenant and its terms and so forth, the history of Israel, the Psalms, the poetic books, the prophetical books, 
the historical books, all of these comprise the law and the prophets, which is the proper term, the law and the prophets, is the proper term for the entire what we call Old Testament. Well, I won't go into any discussion about words there. We do have a certain amount of confusion, but when the apostle talks about ministers of the new covenant, he's not talking about that they're ministers of this portion of the book. He's talking about being a minister of the new arrangements of God with the nation of Israel. Now, you say, with the nation of Israel, what about us? Well, we want to be careful where we see us and where we don't. We certainly see the apostle as a minister of the New Covenant, and we see how the New Covenant operates, and we're going to pay some special attention to tenses as we go through this portion of Scripture, or else we'll end up replacement people, and we'll forget what we've learned out of the book of Romans. And remember, uh, the Scriptures have Romans in front of First and Second Corinthians, because the book of Romans is this great doctrinal treatise, and there's no conflicts uh, between it and First and Second Corinthians, but First and Second Corinthians is intended to line up our practices with the doctrinal statement of the book of Romans. And then when we get to the book of Galatians after this, it's to correct the errors that we come into doctrinally that destroy us and get us back to the book of Romans. So Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians, they form a little grouping of Scripture that all is to certify to us in practice and doctrine that doctrinal treatise that is the book of Romans. And then we'll come to another doctrinal treatise, which is the book of Ephesians, and then we'll come to some epistles that follow it. Uh, We'll come to Philippians and Colossians and Thessalonians that are to line up our practices with the book of Ephesians, the doctrinal statement there, and to correct us when errors come along. And we'll get to that when we get to it. But now here, in order for us to understand this new covenant, we have to look at the book of Romans. And when we look at the book of Romans, we find some things about Israel. We have that great section of Romans 9, 10, and 11. When we see that, we see that Israel has a central place in God's economy, and there are certain things that are assigned to Israel and that are ascribed to Israel, and that is what they get. Now we look at Romans chapter 9, verse 3, where the apostle, well, verse 2, the apostle says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean he really wishes he was lost and went to hell in place of the nation of Israel. Uh, That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's just saying, my heart goes out to these people, and uh, that's where I would have gone if I'd have stuck with them. But here, and the way they look at things, he says, now, who are Israelites? Who are Israelites? To whom? Now, his brethren are Israelites. That's who his brethren are, all the Israelites. To whom pertains a few things. The adoption, that's the national adoption. There will not be another nation under God like Israel. Israel's God's chief nation. The Gentile nations are all organized around Israel, and Israel is never going to not be the chief nation consummately. No one will take Israel's place nationally. Now, they're not the chief nation today uh, because this is the time of Gentile world power. But that doesn't make it any different that they're still the adopted son of God. Israel is my firstborn, as God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, and if you don't let my firstborn go, uh, then I'm going to execute your firstborn. 
And of course, Israel is still the firstborn national son of God. And also what pertains to Israel is the Shekinah glory, the glory. In my home city of Omaha, there's a fella that runs a big Pentecostal church who said that he saw the glory of the Lord in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Well, that's just baloney. To Israel pertains the Shekinah glory, and when it left the temple, it didn't come back. That's why Ichabod was written, and they hoped it would come back at the time of the building of the the rebuilding of the temple in the book of uh, Ezra, but it did not happen, and the Shekinah glory is still missing. Now, it peeped out from the Lord Jesus Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration, so we know that he's the glory of the only begotten of the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. We know that he will return with clouds, and that's the glory that he'll bring to Israel. After all, he is the Savior of Israel. He is the King of Israel. But that glory belongs to Israel and the covenants. And it's plural here. The covenants belong to Israel. Well, what covenants? The Old Covenant at Sinai and the New Covenant, which is referenced not at Sinai, but which was referenced and promised uh, to the children of Israel as the captivity was also promised to them. Uh, The New Covenant was promised to them specifically by the prophet Jeremiah, and it was also certified to them by the prophet Ezekiel. And this is the New Covenant that the apostles talking about here in 2 Corinthians. He said, We are ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And now he's going to contrast, he's going to compare and contrast the two covenants, the one that emanated from Sinai and the one that emanates from Jesus Christ himself. And these covenants are for Israel. We'll see that here, and we're going to see that also in the book of Hebrews. Now, although these covenants are for Israel, we have here the ministration of these covenants or the declaration of these covenants. And who does that? Well, the Apostle Paul does that. Hey, this is BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. I'm doing that today. We'll be right back after this announcement. Well, because this replacement theology thing has gotten so big and you're hearing it everywhere today, I do want to digress. I won't digress. I'm just going to build some underpinnings underneath 2 Corinthians 3 contextually here to help us keep this in proper perspective before we go into the comparison and contrasting of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the way that the Spirit operates differently than the way the letter and the law operates. So we're going to look back at Jeremiah in the 31st chapter And we look at the 31st chapter, we look at the 31st verse. So here's a way to help you understand this, or to help you have a convenient hook for your memory. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, and we begin reading, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, God will make a new covenant with them. That's in the future. This is some of the comforting prophecy that Jeremiah gave to the children of Israel 
Of course, he gave them a lot of discomforting prophecy. He told them about their captivity. He advised them and warned them to go along with it. They didn't. They got the uh, bad results from not paying any attention to him. That didn't surprise him because the Lord warned Jeremiah like he would warn any preacher. It's your job to tell people what I tell you to say. You have no guarantees that they're going to listen. In fact, you have pretty much a guarantee that they're not going to listen. And here I am broadcasting on the radio and on the internet in a couple of different cities or a few cities in the internet. Who knows where it goes as people access it from wherever they want. And it's amazing that you can tell people, well, I have something important to say to you from God, but you won't believe it. That's always the case. And then there's always the exception. Well, anyhow, here's the comfort that he gives. Behold, the day shall come. The days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, verse 32, Jeremiah 31, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Now here they, he's pointed out they broke the covenant, and that's that. Uh, they're, in, they're going into captivity, but I'm going to make a new covenant with them, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that implies, of course, he's going to put the houses of Israel and Judah back together again, they having been split asunder by the evil works of men. But this shall be the covenant that I will make. Now we have verse 33. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now the problem that we have with this replacement theology is that we confuse the ministration of the Spirit with the New Covenant. It's true that the New Covenant will be the ministration of the Spirit, but that does not necessarily mean that the ministration of the Spirit is the New Covenant. Now the ministration of the Spirit has begun with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the ministration of the Spirit, uh, the ministration of the Spirit resulted consummately, not at Pentecost, but consummately resulted in the formation of the church, which is his body. The ministration of the Spirit continues. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ receives a new nature corresponding to the Spirit of the Lord, receives the earnest of the Spirit, which will finally be paid out in full in the resurrection from the dead. And this ministration of the Spirit began right then, and it continues on to this day. It may appear differently. There is not the outward appearance of the gifts of the Spirit that operate today, the sign gifts of the Spirit that operate today, but there still is the ministration of the Spirit. There is still the writing of the Word of God into the heart of a people when we preach the word of god today and you believe it you're believing it with your heart as you believe the scripture grace is visited to you we have introduction by faith we have growth by faith so the ministration is the same but this is not the fulfillment of the new covenant in fact we are now have a hope we have a hope a forward-looking hope 
and part of our forward-looking hope sees God turning back to Israel. That doesn't mean we become Israel. We know that Israel will consummately be blessed, but we're a heavenly people. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have a better promise. We have a better place, and we have a great hope that God will consummately do all that he said he will do. And this now prophesied by Jeremiah. And in Hebrews chapter 8, we see this very thing referenced. Book of Hebrews, a very important treatise of Scripture. I believe it's one of the 14 epistles written by the Apostle Paul. Personally, it's, it's unsigned. I think there's very good reasons why it would be unsigned. I can't imagine anyone else writing this epistle. Everybody weighs in on that. Therefore, I'll weigh in if everybody does. And here now we see what the epistle to the Hebrews reads. Now he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ obtained a more excellent ministry. Verse 6 of Hebrews 8. A more excellent ministry. You see, now, of course, this is about the ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And that's a fact. The new covenant, which is with Israel, is established on better promises, and he's the mediator of the new covenant, but he's also our high priest. He's the high priest of the church, which is his body, and he mediates a better covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there would be no place sought for the second one. Now this attaches directly to the prophecy of Jeremiah, and in verse 8, it is in fact quoted, For finding fault with them, he said, that is, finding fault with the nation of Israel, he said, Behold, the days shall come, thus saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So how'd they break that covenant? They didn't continue in it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Hebrews 8.10. You might think you're reading Jeremiah 31.33. After those days, saith the Lord. After what days? Well, after those days when they are not my people. Not when they're not my, after those days when they're not my people. After those days that they broke the first covenant and before the days that I will make this covenant with them. I'll put my laws into their mind, and I'll write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Now that's all. All means all. These replacement theologians, how come they don't say everybody believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, if somehow a group of Gentiles replaced the children of Israel, then should everybody know. But of course, if it's just those of us who come to know our Lord Jesus Christ, and then what does it mean, they shall all know me? I mean, that's just a restatement. That would be a logical piece of uh, no, no statement whatsoever. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Of course, this is Israel. And he says that. I'll make this with the house of Israel. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new he has made the first old. Now that which decays and wax old is ready to vanish away. Now, 
when we see this new covenant coming in place, it's for the nation of Israel. But what we must welcome here in Second Corinthians and what the apostle is talking about is the ministration of it. The ministration of the new covenant, which, by the way, had Israel received the Lord Jesus Christ, that new covenant would have been in place 2,000 years ago, and all Israel would have been saved, and the Lord would have returned, and so forth and so on. It was a real offer. Of course, God had something better in mind for us, that he would provide this space of grace, as we call it, wherein we become ministers that the ministry of the New Covenant, which is the ministry of the Spirit of God, uh, continues along during this mysterious time when we are looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the church, which is his body. Now, verse 6 again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, who has also made us able ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now he takes up a discussion of the Spirit's work in giving life, and it's a comparison and it's a contrast to the ways of the Old Covenant. And so now he says in verse 7, But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious, written by the finger of God on the tablets of Moses, if that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And now he's saying this, if the ministry that was written in the Old Testament, if the ministry of the Old Testament was glorious, and it was, called the ministration of death, by the way. Yes, in fact, the letter kills. What was the result of that old covenant? It was death. What's the result in the ministry of the law? It is to prove that you're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. So we still have the proper context here. And he says, now the ministration of God, that you deserve to die, if that was glorious, imagine what the ministry of life is, how much glory it is. Now what glory was there? When Moses came down from the mountain, having been with God, and having watched the engravement of those tables of stone, his face shone. He had a face that shone, and they couldn't steadfastly behold his face because of the glory of it too bright, and by the way, but that was a glory which passed. That was a glory that faded. So they say, well, put a veil on your face, Moses, so that we don't see how bright you are, and it doesn't bother our eyes. But on the other side of that, by the way, they also didn't see the fading of the glory, which, by the way, is a very depressing thing. Uh, in fact, that was a certainty to them, just as Moses' face faded, that they were going to die. The glory of God was not imparted to Moses by the law. It was reflected onto him, and he lost that glory because the ministration of the law was not life, but death. Verse 8, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Or, in fact, how is it that the ministration of the Spirit wouldn't be more glorious? And, of course, it is more glorious. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory... And it was the ministry of condemnation of the children of Israel and all of us, in fact. That's now back to Romans. See, whether you're convicted by the law that's written on your heart or if you're convicted by the law that was written in stone, what difference does it make? You're convicted, you're condemned, and uh, even though that's a glorious work of God to condemn you, the, the Word of God, 
it doesn't help you any. So if the ministration of condemnation be glorious, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Now what's the ministration of righteousness? Hey, by grace, through faith, and it exceeds in glory the ministry of the Old Testament. Of course it exceeds in benefit. Uh, of course it exceeds in benefit because the ministration of life benefits us. The ministration of death, uh, there's no benefit there. There's truth there, but no benefit there. Those who think that truth is all they want, hey, listen, I don't just want truth. I learned the truth about myself, that I'm a sinner, that I deserve death. That's not good enough for me, friends. I want saved from that condemnation. I want the ministration of, of righteousness by grace through faith, the only way it could possibly come to me. Well, verse 10, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that exceeds it or that excels. And he says, Now here, actually, that ministration of the law and the glory that was there, it's not glorious in this aspect. The glory of righteousness through Christ and the Spirit of Christ so far excels it, you can no longer call that glorious. You have to now call that dim in comparison, because of the glory that excels. For if that which is done away was glorious, how much more is that which lasts? He says, look, if that which was temporary was glorious, consider this ministration which is permanent. It has begun and it will not stop. The ministration of the Spirit will never stop. You will enjoy this forever. Now, what's more glorious? Which is weightier? Which is more valuable? That's the notion here. Which excels the other in great precious value? The ministration of the law written on stone, which caused a man's face to shine, or the ministration of the Spirit of Christ, which saves you from your sins and brings you into everlasting glory? Well, of course, we know which one's more valuable, don't we? And that's the whole point here of the 11th verse. How much more that which remains is glorious. We have a constructive argument here that's very similar, by the way, to the one given about the retention of the charismatic gifts. He says, you want these more eminent charismata back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And why is it more excellent? Why is the way of love more excellent? Because it lasts and it will continue forever. That which is lasting, it greatly exceeds uh, that which is temporary. And in fact, in the, in the sense that it's eternal, it infinitely exceeds that which is temporary. And that's just a mathematical truth, friends. Now we have verse 12. Seeing then we have such hope, and of course that's the key. You see, it makes us look forward. We use great plainness of speech. Well, I hope my speech has been plain today. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. Stay with us next time, and we'll continue in the third chapter of Second Corinthians. May God bless your meditation in His Word.